This is Mortgage Lending Mastery. Get the knowledge you need from America's Mortgage Mentor. With more than 30 years of experience and over $1 billion in lifetime fundings, you'll learn to take your mortgage practice to new heights. Certified Mortgage Planner and CEO of KineticSparkConsulting.com, here is Jennifer Duplessis. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Mortgage Lending Mastery. I'm your host, Jen Duplessis, where we focus on you, the loan originator, to give you great ideas so that you can increase your volume today and every day moving forward. And I am so pleased today to be and honored to have um, our guest speaker, Frank Notaft, um, who is the chief economist with CoreLogic, and he's also a senior vice president. And many of you may have remembered Frank from um, his Freddie Mac days when he was the chief economist there, and that's actually where I originally met him. Uh, Frank, so welcome. Welcome to the show. We're so tickled to have you. Oh, thanks so much, Jen. It's a pleasure to, to be here with you today. Yep. I'm really excited. And, uh, you know, Frank and I, we just spoke at, down in uh, New Orleans at a, a conference together. We were on a panel together and found out we're both Germans from almost the same place in Germany. So we're excited about that. That's right. Yeah, well. sim similar ancestry. Yeah, exactly. So let me tell you all about Frank a little bit before we jump in and why this particular podcast is so timely. Uh, you know, as I said before, Frank is, uh, Dr. Frank, by the way, is a senior vice president and chief economist for CoreLogic, which is the um, America's largest provider of advanced property and ownership information. You know, it's a lot of analytics, it's data-enabled services. Um, you know, you want statistics, you can get them from CoreLogic. And what I love about CoreLogic is that um, you have companies that are signed on, but you also have individuals too, because I've been able to get some information when it was timely and needed. And I love that your company loves working with us, you know, to help us in our industry. But before joining uh, CoreLogic, he's had many leadership positions, you know, particularly at Freddie Mac, you know, where he was vice president and chief economist. And, you know, he's been an economist for many, many years. He was in, um, on the board of governors for the Federal Reserve um, System. And that is why we have him on this particular call. Because um, today we're recording this on December 14th, and the feds have just hiked the, the Federal Reserve, um, why am I, I'm having a brain fade. I know what it is. The, oh my the God. Fund Fed funds, the Fed's fund rate, <laughs> which gosh, you know, now since I, since I sound like a silly person, like I don't know what it is, I better make sure that I tell everybody what it is. You know, the Fed funds rate is the rate that banks charge to one another for overnight borrowing. So there you go. I do know what I'm talking about. I just had a little brain fade. Uh, you know, and, and we waited for this particular interview because, uh, you know, I had asked you, Frank, you know, several months ago, would you be willing to share with us, you know, an economic outlook for housing and mortgage lending for 2017? And we thought, let's wait and see what they do in December and then make it real timely. So here we are. Absolutely. They made the announcement a couple of hours ago, and we got to hear what you have to say, Frank, about What's going to happen to our industry in next in the next year? Sure. Well, uh, the the announcement this afternoon was just the the very next step in what appears to be a, a gradual increase in interest rates throughout the economy, both for short-term interest rates and for long-term interest rates. And indeed, just over the last six weeks or so since the uh, election, the presidential election, we've seen long-term interest rates and mortgage rates move higher. Mm -hmm. And now the Federal Reserve has followed suit and it's pushed up the Fed funds target by a quarter of a percentage point. And I think we're going to be looking to, uh, forward to at least two more quarter point rate hikes during 2017. 
Uh, and with that, we may see somewhat higher mortgage rates as well. I kind of think that we're going to see mortgage rates for 30-year fixed rates up around 4.5% by the time we get to the fourth quarter of 2017. Okay. So now let me ask you this. So are, are you, because I'm getting kind of, I'm, you know, I'm, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of people, including you. And, you know, I'm, I'm getting the sense that we'll probably have another increase in February. Mm-hmm. Do you think? What do you think? Do you think we'll have one that quickly? Or do you think we'll find something maybe more in the spring market? Well, you know, there's, the other thing you hear about in the market right now is, oh my gosh, we have so much uncertainty. There's just, Mm -hmm. you know, we always have uncertainty, but it seems a bit elevated right now because we've had the presidential election uh, Mm -hmm. and President-elect Trump is coming uh, in and he's got a whole new uh, cabinet team and series of advisors. And he's mentioned a lot about what he he would like to do with... um, stimulating economic growth uh, and uh, growing jobs in the economy. And that includes uh, tax simplification and uh, cuts in marginal tax rates. It includes infrastructure spending. Uh, It includes some type of deregulation. Uh, And, you know, the the devil's always in the details, and we don't have a lot of details on on all three of those aspects. Uh, But it's... But if he's able to implement all or at least part of what he has talked about doing, it should work to stimulate economic growth in uh, the coming year. And with faster economic growth, creating more jobs, which is good because more jobs means more income for uh, families so, mm-hmm. and more yeah. spending, more spending right. on, on all sorts of things, including buying homes. That's good. Mm-hmm. But it also raises the specter of um, maybe an acceleration in inflation in the economy. Right. And it's that specter of higher inflation that's working to push up long-term interest rates like what we've seen with 30-year fixed rate mortgages. Right. Well, do you think, um, because I think, you know, in our industry, uh, we, you know, clients call us all the time and say, you know, I need to buy, I need to buy, I need to refinance before the election. And do you really think a party, a specific party has anything to do with that? Or do you think it's just pure change, regardless of what party that, that has an impact on, you know, what we're seeing? Because gosh, virtually, I mean, that moment that he was announced as president elect, we have seen rates go up, up, up. <laughs> um, so is it, is it a Trump thing or is it a change thing? Because I'm kind of leaning towards the fact that it's probably just change, you know, that, that speculation of, okay, someone new at the helm, now what? You know, it, it may be a change thing, but it's a specific type of change. It's a, it's a change where uh, there will be one party that is in the White House and also in control of both houses of Congress. And that's very different from where we've been for the last six years. Um, And it's because one party has both the executive and the legislative branch, maybe makes it more likely that there'll be some legislation that that moves forward. Uh, And that's been some of the, uh, the, you know, concern or issues uh, with, uh, uh, you know, legislation over the last half dozen years. There's been a lot of tension and a lot of... uh, knocking heads together between the executive branch and the legislative branch. So it may be that there'll be more on the same, you know, thinking uh, going, mm-hmm. going forward for the next couple of years. So yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a specific type of change that might make it more likely for uh, legislation to move forward and to break some of that logjam in Congress. Okay, so let me go back to your your uh, comment about four and a half percent by the fourth quarter of 2017. Um, given that that the Fed's just raised rates today, and that we think we'll probably have another couple, and we're you know we're sitting at four and an eighth, four and a quarter on interest rates now. Why is it that we wouldn't be at five with this many changes and and this projection of uh, possible inflation? Why is it that you don't think we'll be much higher than four and a half? Yeah, and that's a great question, Jen. And, and, of, and of course, something like that could happen, uh, but I think that's very unlikely for 2017, in part because what really drives up long-term interest rates uh, are concerns about uh, uh, acceleration in inflation. And so far uh, in the U.S., we've had a pretty low, modest, pace of inflation over the last uh, few years, and it doesn't seem like it's going to accelerate that quickly. However, it turns out that there's a really powerful uh, stimulus package through tax cuts, infrastructure spending, deregulation that's uh, able to be enacted in the coming year. It, it possibly could change the, uh, the dynamics and um, you know, lead the market to expect higher inflation. Now, if that if that looks like it's becoming reality, what we should anticipate also is that um, uh, 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 Janet Yellen, the chair of the Fed, mm-hmm. will be much more willing to increase short-term interest rates to um, reduce the amount of monetary stimulus that's driving the economy. So we may actually see a more rapid increase in uh, short-term interest rates. So I mentioned I expect two quarter-point rate hikes on the federal funds in 2017. If it looks like the economy is overheating, we could see three or maybe even four on the high side, four rate hikes of a quarter-point each in 2017. Um, and that would then, I think, forestall and prevent uh, mortgage rates from getting up to, uh, you know, well above four yeah. and a half, close to yeah. 5%. The old days. I, you know, gosh, I remember the day that, that they came down and they were single digits. It was nine, nine point five. We were so excited. <laughs> you know, oh, I, so, I, I mean, we're spoiled. <laughs> well, when I was a first-time home buyer, and this was last millennium, the first mortgage I had was 10.5%, and I thought yeah. I was lucky. You got lucky, but you did. Yeah. I think mine was 14, 14.875, and it was an FHA in 1983 or 81 or something. Yeah, mm-hmm. crazy, crazy time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so um, you know, sort of keeping in line with just the conversation around the Federal Reserve and, and how, uh, you know, they operate and function. Of course, we know that their, you know, sole job is to manage, you know, the monetary policy and make sure we keep inflation in check. Um, how do you feel or, or what do you think about the use of the Fed dots in assessing where interest rates would go? Because I, the reason why I ask you this is that I use the Fed dots chart when a client asks me, where do you think rates are going to go, to show them where I think they think they're going to go. Now, of course, they're short term, not long term, but I'm just curious how you, what's your take on the Fed dots and how you uh, use them in determining what, what you think might be the outcome? 
Well, I use them the same way that, that you do, uh, Jen. Okay. Uh, I actually think it's a good insight into the thinking of the um, um, voting members of the of the committee that set monetary policy. And the reason that the, um, they decided to start releasing that information, and, and they've been releasing it for about three years now, mm-hmm. is that uh, they wanted to you know, offer or, or at least project a greater uh, feeling of transparency and communication uh, to the public at large about what their intentions are and what their expectations are for the uh, U.S. economy in terms of uh, economic growth, in terms of the unemployment rate, in terms of inflation, and then ultimately how that uh, ties back to those dots, namely what their thinking is about the appropriate level of the federal funds target. Mm -hmm. I I think it's a useful uh, way to communicate to uh, the public um, and rather than everything seem to seemingly to be in a black box and hidden from view, at least they're, they're showing some of their thinking as, as portrayed in the charts. And I think it's a good way to think about why rates probably will be going up more in 2017 and then ultimately in 2018 as oh, yeah. well. Yeah, I've seen. Well, you know, for me, it's the um, proverbial uh, crystal ball. You know, I don't have to have a crystal ball because people say that all the time. You know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but where do you think rates are going to go? And I say, well, actually, I do have somewhat of a crystal ball. Let me show you the Fed dots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And it's third party. It's third party, not my opinion. So thank you for sharing um, that. And, and, you know, for those of you that are listening that aren't familiar with the Fed dots, I'll put a link up to um, the Fed dots in our show notes so that you'll be able to uh, – you know, locate those if you need to. And I, I actually, we probably won't have the today's change in there until a couple more months. But um, so let's talk about next year. Where where do you think, uh, and, and you and I were discussing before we, you know, we started recording, you know, the five different areas that you were talking about for economic growth for next year, if you wouldn't mind going through that with us. Um, I think you've already hit mostly on rates. I think you've got a little bit to say about HELOCs, though. Yes, yes. So um, the most immediate effect of increasing the Fed funds target will be felt on short-term interest rates, such as the bank prime rate, such as other short-term rates like one-year treasury um, Uh yields, one-year LIBOR yields. And of course, all of those are important in adjusting adjustable rate mortgages, pricing arms, and of course, pricing HELOCs as well. The HELOCs generally are tied to a bank prime. The arms are generally tied to a LIBOR or a treasury uh, yield. Mm -hmm. So with increases in short-term interest rates, the most immediate effect will be on people who already have an arm or already have a HELOC, and also on those people who plan to take out an arm or a HELOC uh, in the coming year. Uh, that's not to say that people with, um, who are planning to get a fixed-rate loan are, are not affected. They will be affected, too, because we are expecting long-term interest rates to gradually rise in 2017. Uh, of course, the big advantage for a fixed-rate loan uh, for people who have them already is that they're a fixed rate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> their rate, and their rate is not going to change. They missed it, right. <laughs> they, they missed it, right. So if, if you did take a fixed rate loan out sometime in, over the last couple of years, then uh, you're sitting pretty right now. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Well, and I think this opens up an opportunity, you know, if I can just interject from a sales perspective, you know, and what that means. Um, these are opportunities. What we're going to be seeing is our clients are going to start getting a little concerned because pr prior to this, they were saying, well, you know, prime's low, um, interest rates are really low, you know, and in fact, gosh, in the Fed dots, there were a couple of a dissensions, you know, into negative rates, and we all thought that was silly at first until Japan and everybody else in Europe you know, went negative on interest rates, but everybody was holding tight. They're like, I really don't have to do anything until, you know, until the Fed start raising rates. Well, now that they're doing that, I, I think that, you know, we all need to recognize that that's an opportunity for us to reach into our database of clients that we already have and who have home equity lines and talk to them about what their strategies are going to be moving forward if we're going to continue to um, sit with that loan and let it continue to rise or if we really do need to consider um, transferring that into a fixed rate um, a mortgage for them, you know, and I, I think that it's important as um, mortgage professionals that we reach out and advise our clients um, in these uncertain times rather than having the client reach out to us. Oh, absolutely. Those are great points. Now, uh, fortunately, uh, you know, uh, prime rates are still low, even though that, you know, they will go up a quarter percentage point mm -hmm. uh, as a result of the Fed funds target rising a quarter percentage point. But uh, they, they still remain relatively low. I still remain relatively uh, uh, bullish on the HELOC market for 2017. And what I mean by that mm -hmm. is I do think that HELOC, uh, uh, new HELOC loans, uh, new HELOC originations mm -hmm. are likely going to increase in 2017 over the volume of the past year. It'll still be just a, uh, a fraction, you know, well less than half of what we saw in the annual volume in 2005, 6, 7, you know, those boom years when the housing market was just booming and we were in that bubble situation. Right. So HELOC volume will still be far, far, far less than during 2006, but it will be higher. And I think it'll be the best year for uh, HELOCs in maybe since 2008 or so. And the wow. reason I think so okay. is because house prices in most markets continue to rise. As you know, they're up about five to 6%, depending on where you live. Um, about five to six percent in our CoreLogic home price index over the last year, and we're expecting that our national index will rise another 4.7 percent in 2017. And okay. for uh, increases in house prices, that builds home equity and home right. equity wealth for consumers. Uh, I'm expecting that we may see as much as. Uh, in the aggregate across all homeowners in the U.S., about $1 trillion in new home equity wealth created during 2017, in large part because of the rise in house prices. And okay. with that additional home equity, that gives homeowners the opportunity to um, place a HELOC or maybe uh, a closed-end second lien in order to tap into that home equity for home improvement uh, purposes, for uh, you know college debt tuition for the kids, mm -hmm. debt consolidation, all of the all of the above. Uh, there's another interesting phenomenon that's been occurring over the last decade or so. The average age 
of America's housing stock has been getting a little bit older. And that's partly because the, rel- the, the amount of new construction, new home building, remains depressed. And, mm-hmm. and it's been depressed for a number of years. Consequently, the average age of the housing stock has gotten a bit older. And I mention it because as the housing stock ages, it gets prone to you know, maintenance and repair, right. <laughs> right. which is, is what a HELOC or any type of home improvement loan um, is, is there for to help finance and support. Right. So those are some of the reasons why I'm remaining kind of positive that I think we'll see an increase in new um, credit extensions through HELOC. Hmm. Um, Interesting. And plus they have these nice, comfy, cozy, low interest rate first mortgages that they just don't want to give up. Exactly. That's, that's hmm. the other phenomenon at play for those people who had the opportunity to take out a loan or refinance sometime in the last uh, few months, last couple of years, they're going to be sitting there pretty happy with uh, a really low interest rate on their first lien. And they're not going to want to give that up now that we, now that we have mortgage rates already above 4%. So I think that's another factor too. Uh, And looking at purchase and refi in the single family market, for 2017, we're expecting about a 6% rise in the dollar volume of purchase money originations in 2017. And that's mostly because of house price growth and just a, a little pickup, a little increase in home sales, helping to fuel the increase in purchase, uh, purchase money volume. But in contrast, with the rise in rates, we're expecting refinance to fall anywhere from 40%, maybe as much as 50% in dollar volume in 2017 when compared to 2016. Right. Uh, so when you put all those pieces together, that does mean that the total origination volume in 2017 will be down a bit. Uh, it'll probably be down in dollars, maybe 15 to as much as 20% in 2017 compared to 2016. Okay. Yep. Well, and you know, that's really important. And, uh, you know, especially for those that are listening, uh, at least at this podcast and maybe some other podcasts you're looking at, you know, this is where the cream rises to the top. This is where the best loan officers are going to get the lion's share and why I'm so excited that you're on this podcast with me right now as this dynamic just changed and now we can look forward and, and start planning, you know, in advance. Oh, uh, absolutely. To be able to yeah. get a, a lion's share of, you know, that purchase money business. Um, okay, so let's talk about, uh, you know, I think you had talked about, um, well, and, and also multifamily. I think you had mentioned also multifamily you see is going up a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's exactly um yeah, let's talk about that. I just want to pick up on a comment uh, you made. Since we will be shifting toward a very strong purchase share of originations in 2017, it really uh, you know, behooves the you know, uh, brokers and loan officers throughout the U.S. to, to really develop those um, relationships, those networks with the real estate agent community because that is what can really funnel uh, the purchase loan applications to 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 that loan officer. Um, uh, 
There'll still be a refinance market, no question about it, but refinance might only be maybe 25% of, of next year's volume, maybe 30% at most. So it will be a purchase money-driven market in 2017. Uh, let's turn that a multifamily. And you know, by multifamily, I do mean you know apartment buildings, not two-family houses, but uh, you know uh, structures with at least five rental apartments and generally large apartment buildings. And 2016 is coming in so far. Um, you know, final data are not in, but right now we are on track to be close to $200 billion in multifamily mortgage originations for the calendar year 2016, uh, setting a new record volume. Wow. Absolutely huge. And, and most of that is, is refinance. Mm -hmm. um, now, for 2017, uh, I think what we'll see is, is a, a pattern actually that's not too different from single family. Uh, I actually do think we'll see an increase in um, kind of the purchase uh, money volume of multifamily originations, in part because uh, new, new building, new completions of multifamily rental apartments has been very, very strong. Um, we are, we're seeing the, the highest level of new construction in about 30 years in the multifamily rental space. And that'll all translate into you know, permanent financing mortgages. But on the refinance side, one thing that really drives refinance, well, of course, is mortgage rates, but the second thing that's unique to multifamily is the fact that most of the conventional multifamily mortgages have yield maintenance provisions. They typically have a 10-year term, 30-year mm -hmm. amortization, but a yield maintenance provision that usually makes it not cost-effective to refinance before eight and a half or nine years. So to get a sense of how much refinance there'll be in 2017, all one needs to do is look back to 2007, 2008, and see how much originations there were then, because right. that's, that's the, that's the um, vintages that'll be coming out of the yield maintenance period and become more likely or eligible for refinance. Okay. And when we look back, um, to, to 2007 and 2008, there, there was a lot of lending in 07, but 2008 is already where we're starting to have the housing market crash. Uh, house prices were falling, property values are falling, uh, lending is starting to tighten up, and lending on multifamily declined a lot in 2008. And that's why I think looking at 2017, we may actually see a drop in refinance for two reasons. First, mortgage rates will be higher for multifamily. But secondly, looking back nine to 10 years ago, multifamily lending was already starting to shrink because of the crash in the housing market and the upcoming Great Recession. Yep, I understand what you're saying. Yep. Well, and so then because we have so much, um, the highest level of building that we've had in the last 30 years, in another 10 years, we're probably going to see something larger in that economic space. Assuming rates are pretty good, I, I imagine over 10 years, we're going to see them go up and then back down. <laughs> At some point. Gotcha. And maybe back up again. <laughs> maybe. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I, I'd say that's probably right. Uh, uh, gee, uh, Jen, no one's asked me for a 10-year forecast on multifamily origination. <laughs> well, at least wow. on multifamily. Yeah, but if we look out there, you know, the yield maintenance, that's probably not going to be the case. It's just going to see, we'll have to see how cyclical we are. You know, it, you know, previously, gosh, you know, before all the crunch and stuff, you could almost anticipate that, you know, rates were cyclical in 26 and a half month periods, you know, like every 26 months they were doing something different. It's so different now. Uh, you know, it's so unpredictable. It's just so, it's so global. I, I think yeah. that has a lot to do with it. It's just very oh, ab- oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the capital markets, uh, you know, really global and, and funds are just, you know, coming in from many different parts of the world. Right. Right. So that, you know, because you're talking about multifamily, that leads us into the rental market. Um, yeah. And I think this is really important because a lot of people have bought rental property during this, you know, low interest rate time when, you know, they could pay cash for something. And um, so what what's happening with rents? Are they are we seeing them going up? Are we seeing them stay the same? <laughs> Uh, in the in the U.S. as a whole, rents are still rising, and they're still rising more rapidly than than overall inflation in the economy. So, housing continues to get more expensive. Now, having said all that, the rate of growth of rents is slowing, and that's partly in response to what I had just mentioned about all this new construction, largest amount of of new rental construction in 30 years in the U.S. And this new construction is being completed, adding to significantly to the supply on the marketplace. And that's what's leading to the moderation and rent growth. And in some markets where a lot of supply, new supply has come on, rent growth has really slowed down to, you know, you know, maybe pretty flat um, over the last several months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, but nationally, when we look at it, Rent growth has slowed, and I expect it still to rise about 3% on average rents during mm-hmm. 2017 in a national index. And one thing we've constructed at CoreLogic that uh, I think is really interesting is a, uh, a rent index, and we modeled it after CoreLogic's Case-Shiller house price index. Mm-hmm. It's the same method, but we replaced house prices with repeat rents, that is rents on the same structure over time. And what we found was that uh, rents on single family homes, single family rental homes, Mm -hmm. rents were rising at about a 4% per year rate, national average, uh, about a year ago. And then it's gradually slowed. And over the last 12 months through through, uh, October, uh, rents had slowed to 3.4% growth, still pretty good, but right. a little bit yeah. slower. Mm-hmm. And in 2017, our forecast is that rents will continue to rise in the national index, but slow to about 3% increase in 2017. And again, that's faster than inflation because inflation is expected to be maybe 2 to 2.5% two in the U.S. during 2017. So rents will still be rising relative to that, but just not as fast as they had been. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you what, that's near and dear to my heart because I have rental properties. And uh, <laughs> I, that's great that it's national, but I found that it actually went down in the metro area. Oh, sure. Um, I, yeah. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't get uh, more rent for a house. I just couldn't. 
uh, all yeah. year, the last couple of years? It, it really varies a lot by uh, metro area, depending on how much new rental supply has been built. So, yeah. for example, here uh, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area, and there's been a lot of new multifamily rental properties that have been completed and come on the market. And that has really worked to slow um, rent growth. And in uh, lots of neighborhoods around the D.C. metro area, rents are flat on a year-over-year basis. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, for that very reason. Okay, so what's next? What haven't we covered about what you think is going to happen in 2017? Well, um, you know, I did mention that construction has been depressed, except on the the multifamily rental side. Uh, I do think we'll see increases in housing starts and construction in 2017, but still not at a sufficient enough pace to keep up with new household growth. Mm. So we have lots of young people, lots of millennials who will be forming households in the coming year. And, um, and while builders will be building new units, they won't be building enough to keep up with it. Mm-hmm. And so I do think vacancy rates will continue to remain low. Again, I'm referring to national averages, and it'll vary mm-hmm. a lot by metro area. Mm-hmm. But vacancy rates for rental homes, for homes for sale will continue to remain uh, low. Um, And that also means that the inventory of homes for sale probably will remain pretty lean in most markets. That's one of the reasons we're forecasting house prices to rise in 2017. Uh, We've seen limited inventory for sale continuing for many years now in many markets around the U.S., and it's that very lean inventory that's helping to push prices up because we have an increase in in demand to buy homes, especially coming from the millennials who are looking to be first-time home buyers, and they're finding Mm it a challenge to find an affordably priced home. The other thing I'll mention, uh, since we talked about the mortgage market uh, lately, um, is is the... um, uh, relatively low credit risk that we continue to see on loans that are being originated. Uh-huh. Now, I know there are um, uh, lots of low-down payment products, FHA, even Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae have a 97 conventional uh, right. product. So there are low-down payment products in the marketplace, and with the uh, uh, FHA and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, um, they're exempt from the qualified mortgage rules. And so you can go with a little higher debt-to-income ratio as well. Um, so there are loans being made with low-down payment and elevated um, payment-to-income ratios. Nonetheless, when we look at all originations in the U.S. and we look at a whole variety of credit risk attributes, not just LTV, not just debt to income, but if we look at the credit score, we look at the level of documentation, uh, we look at uh, investor versus owner-occupied primary residence, when we look at across all these different credit risk dimensions, overall, the credit risk on new originations tends to be relatively low or less than what we saw 
10 years ago, but also less than what we saw 15 years ago or further back. Um, I think those conditions probably will continue in 2017 as well, where we'll see, um, you know, depending on your perspective, uh, either uh, a very high quality of loans being made or what some people might refer to as relatively tight credit underwriting conditions in the marketplace. Yeah, I think so too. Um, now, well, let me ask you this question, though. I mean, I think I think that is in our, our standard underwriting, um, you know, sort of run-of-the-mill loans. What are you seeing in what I call situational lending? We used to all call, you know, alternative lending or subprime and things like that. There seems to be a lot of noise out there about um, the non-QM investors um, and that possibly opening up. What are you hearing and, and seeing in that market? Well, I, I agree. I, you hear a lot of chatter. There's a lot of mm -hmm. talk in the marketplace and there, there, there is some more private capital coming in looking for opportunities in that space. So there are loans being made that are non-QM loans. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are opportunities for that to expand as well in 2017. My, my sense is that it's going to still remain a, a small portion of the overall market even in 2017. Um, yeah. Yeah, those loans do come with um, higher interest rates typically. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, you know, it de depends. You know, uh, it's really going to depend on the appetite. Well, you know, and this, right. this takes me back to one of the things that you had just said, you know, about the millennials, you know, creating a household. How do you feel, how do you think, or do you even have um, any analytics behind this about, you know, these, these millennials have only known rates in the threes. That's it. <laughs> so while they're trying to form homes and they want to own homes and, and you know, the, the inventory is low and it's kind of jacking up prices, what do you think the effect is going to be on their perception of higher interest rates? Do you think they'll back off and that will open up opportunities for other people or do you think that they're just going to kind of plow forward and it's not going to matter? Um, I, I think we'll probably see a couple of things. In the short term, I think it'll be like a wake-up call for those who have been sitting on the fence, you know, and they kind of were expecting these low rates to, to stay with them for, stay with us for a long time. When they realize, gosh, rates are going up. Oh my gosh, you know, maybe it's time for me to get off my, my, my buns and go buy a home. So we may see that in the near term. And I, I do expect we'll see some uh, purchase activity that, that adds to the spring buying market from uh, millennials who are in that situation. They've, they've got jobs, uh, they've saved up some money. They were just waiting on the sidelines. And now that they realize rates are going up, they're gonna take action. Um, but longer term, if rates do go up a lot more, if we do see them go above 4.5% in the coming year, it could work out to be a bit of a negative because of the affordability pinch, mm -hmm. especially in higher cost markets. You know, when you, as you know, Jen, you know, gosh, last summer we had 30-year fixed rate at three and a half. Right. So if rates are up to four and a half percent, if that should happen, you know, in in the next <laughs> few weeks or few months, that's a big change. That's that I know it's an increase of one percentage point, but relative to three and a half percent, that's actually more like an increase of about 30 percent in your yeah. mortgage interest cost. Um, right. And if house prices are continuing to rise, 
that, is, that does translate into a much bigger mortgage payment than would have been the case if they had bought last summer. So, right. so I think that's the challenge, the affordability pinch that um, many uh, millennials may face if they wait too long. Right. Well, and I think, uh, you know, if there's any regulatory changes that, you know, Trump is proposing and anything has to do with um, student loans and how they're looked at in the mortgage space, I think that, you know, if there, if that remains the same, the way that the qualifying is now that we have to count all that debt against them, but if there's a change in that, I think that that could, you know, put some, uh, not some pressure, but some uh, relief on that differential in mortgage rates, you know, and, could, and that's, a, yeah. that's a big speculation as to whether or not he could overturn any of that and, and whether investors would even want that. Right, right, right. Um, but it might help compensate for it. Okay, so let's talk about the baby boomers because what I'm hearing, um, and I, I was hearing this, uh, you know, actually when, um, I think I think you came to our Apex uh, Spring Housing and, um what we were hearing is that baby boomers downsizing were competing with millennials buying their first homes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and there was a lot of competition in there. Now, how do you think that's going to play out given that baby boomers have seen higher interest rates and they know that this is a norm, you know, that could happen? Is, do you think there's any impact whatsoever on that that, would, that might, uh, you know, if the millennials back off a little bit? Uh, because because it's just they're too they're squeezed out of those high uh, priced homes in in the higher markets that maybe that would give baby boomers more opportunities to finally sell their house because in 2007 you know they had bought the big mansion the McMansion the values went down and they've been sitting on the house right and they just want to get out so do you see that that might shift and be replaced by baby boomers to replace that volume? Well, it, it, it may, and I think one reason that the inventory for homes for sale remains lean, and there are a number of reasons why, but one of them is demographics, because when we look at uh, the demographics of who are homeowners in America today, the biggest cohort is the baby boomers, by far. They yeah. are the biggest cohort of homeowners today in America, mm-hmm. and the... Um, the oldest baby boomers uh, turned 70 years old here in 2016, and uh, the uh, the older baby boomers are the ones who are, are are kind of at that age where they make the they either have already or are considering downsizing, uh, moving to um, maybe a, a small home in the winter months down south and a small home for the summer months up north. Um, uh, but but that those older baby boomers are not the biggest part of the baby boom cohort. The, the biggest part were actually the people born after them who are, are younger. <laughs> and right, they're Gen in X's, their... Yeah, yeah they're... Um, the largest number of baby boomers are now uh, in around 55 to 60 years old. Mm-hmm. And for many of them, while some have retired, by far, most of them are still in their working careers, have put down deep roots in their local communities, and are not yet set to either downsize or to uh, you know, move to a retirement community. 
And that's one reason the inventory of homes for sale remains kind of uh, limited. Uh, and, yeah, good point. Mm-hmm. And, and, and one artifact of the, um, the Great Recession that's also affected this is the fact that uh, some of these baby boomers who otherwise might have considered downsizing, they suddenly have their kids and maybe their grandkids moving back right. in. Living with them, right? <laughs> Living with them, absolutely. Yeah. And so while they ordinarily might have considered and may have actually acted on and downsized and sold their home, they're keeping their home longer um, because, you know, they've got other family members living with them. See, this is why I like asking you the question because I'm thinking, okay, they're going to be running out there and we're going to get a whole bunch of loans for baby boomers when, in fact, we're wondering how come they're not doing that. Um, so that's right on that. Yeah, it's right on that cusp. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you some really interesting analysis we did with our uh, public records database that we have at CoreLogic. We took a look at, um, for people who were selling their home, uh, how long they had owned that home before selling it. And we looked at it over many, many years. And it was really interesting what we found. What we found was that leading up to about 2005, looking way back, going 10, 20 years back, up through 2005, typically uh, somebody selling their home um, on average had owned their home for six years. But since then, that uh, the length of home ownership has increased steadily so that last year it was 10 years. Wow. And so if people are keeping their homes longer, that also then means there is less inventory put on the market for sale. There's less so, churning. Yeah, less there's churning. There's less churning, it, absolutely. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Now I'll bet that those of us listening on this call are still talking to people about seven years. Mm-hmm. We're still in the mode of, you know, no, I don't, I don't think anybody's really saying most people stay in their home for five years. I think they're now saying seven, but um, pretty interesting. You know, and I, uh, do you happen to have any data on how long people have a mortgage uh, before they refinance? Because they may live in their home for 10 years, but do we know how often uh, you know, because given the interest rates have been so low, there just hasn't been as much refinancing that there mm. usually is during the tenure of owning a home. Yeah, yeah. So that's a good point. You know, um, um, uh, we we can take a, a, a deeper look into that. What we have seen is, the, uh, of course, that when whenever rates drop, that's when you see a lot of people come out of the woodwork to refinance. Um, right. But as rates are rising, coming off of a low point, that's when we see significant drops in refinancing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think we're in one of those cycles right now. We had this in- incredible period of ultra-low mortgage rates. As you know, 3.5% throughout all mm-hmm. the summer. And coming off of that, we're going to see rates moving higher up to maybe 4.5% toward the end of 2017, and then higher in 2018. And in that type of environment, um, that's going to choke off a lot of that financial incentive to refinance. So how long will people be holding their mortgages? Those people 
those homeowners who took out a mortgage that has a, a three handle on the coupon, they're going to yeah. be keeping those mortgages a long time. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. So I think it's going to be new blood, not researching <laughs> yes. a database, right? right. <laughs> Some new blood into this. Well, what would you like to leave us with? Um, if or have we have we discussed everything that you wanted to say? And before we go to that, but uh, if not, if if we have, then you know, what would you like to leave us with? Uh, well, well, certainly, uh, best wishes for uh, <laughs> a, a healthy and prosperous 2017 for everybody in the industry. Um, the um, as I mentioned earlier, uh, for uh, you know, brokers, loan officers, it's going to be really important to nurture and develop the network that uh, each of them has, especially with the real estate agent community, because what we see going forward is a purchase money dominated marketplace in 2017 and into 2018 as well. Sure, there'll be some refinance. Mm -hmm. Much of that refinance will be people who took out FHA loans you know, a couple few years ago, have benefited from appreciation so that they're current loan to value is down at 80%, and they'll be looking to refi to get rid of that FHA PMI. mortgage insurance. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. yep. So there, there'll still be refi opportunities out there, um, but it's really the purchase money that, we'll, that we are expecting will expand. And for those brokers and loan officers who've been able to really nurture and develop their, um, their network with agents, that's going to be an important way to kind of funnel in new business. Right. Absolutely. I, I hope all of you are listening in on this because if you were riding that lovely tide of refinances, and of course we all went after some of them because they were, you know, low-hanging fruit, but if you failed to maintain those relationships with your realtors, you're going to be out there competing against everybody else doing the same thing. You know, and so now, uh, you know, and I always thought this, you know, if I'm not in front of my realtor, my competition is. So it's in my best interest to be in front of my realtor as often and frequently as I possibly can to nurture and deepen my relationship with them. Um, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. So, Frank, what are you reading these days? What's, what's a book you're reading they'd like to share with us? Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, I, um, I, I, I work so much on housing and mortgage markets uh, in the office uh, that I, I prefer to read something just completely different uh, uh -huh. when, I'm, when I'm on my leisure time. And so I'm reading a book that's a combination um, history book and a travelogue book. Um, and it's entitled, um, uh, what was it again? Uh, it, it happened here, I think, or something like that. And it's really interesting. The author um, is—he's identified uh, places where some interesting historical event happened in the U.S., but it's not um, marked by a monument or any other type of uh, uh -huh. marking. And and his account uh, is how he he gets to this location. So that's the travelogue part of it, and what he describes in this, you know, in going to this this place. But then he also provides some history as to why it is of historical importance to the U.S. So it's kind of, it's it's a really different book. It's it's both history and a travelogue. 
Well, and you love you love investigating, right? So this I do. fits perfectly with you, <laughs> whether you're investigating <laughs> analytics or you're investigating some some other piece of it. Well, yeah, that's well. Thank you for sharing. I always like asking everybody because I, you know, I, I just love learning and I and I love hearing what people are listening to, and it gives us some insight into who you are behind the scenes, you know, <laughs> and uh, what some of the things are that you that you love. So, you know, Frank, I I just can't thank you enough for, um, you know, first saying yes to me uh, several months ago and then, you know, taking the time to do this today specifically, right after um, the feds raised the rates again. So thank you so much for being with us. Um, oh, I'm ha happy to do it. And it's, it's been a real pleasure. And, and thank you so much for thinking of uh, inviting me to be on of with course, you. Of course I would. So listen, everybody, check out CoreLogic. Um, you know, even for your companies, you want to get your hands wrapped around all of this wonderful data that's available to you through CoreLogic. Um, it, it's just, it, it can be mind-boggling. You can get very inundated with it. But if you can, uh, you know, chow through it and, you know, dissect it in a way that you say, okay, this is how I'm going to present to my client. This is how I'm going to teach people, um, my realtor partners, and this might also be the way that you're setting up your uh, success for next year as you're developing your marketing and business plan. So, um, you know, just a, a great company to be able to get lots and lots of information that, that would be beneficial to your business. And again, I want to say thank you so much for listening. Um, these last couple of years, we're coming up on our two-year anniversary of Mortgage Lending Mastery on January 1st of 2017. And um, I appreciate everything all of you have um, done to help grow my podcast so that I can continue to share ideas that will make you successful. So go on to iTunes and write a, a quick review for us. We'd love to hear what you had to say. And of course, if you write any reviews about Frank, I'm going to be sharing them with him so that he knows exactly um, what kind of impact he made for us today as well. So we'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Mortgage Lending Mastery. If you liked what you heard, please drop by iTunes and leave a comment or rating. Get more free email updates, transcripts, selling and education resources, and Jen's upcoming speaking events. Just visit our website at kineticsparkconsulting.com.